You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks. I'm back in Southern California after spending just under two weeks in Washington State. In that time, I spent some time with family, saw one of my closest friends and his lovely new fiance. And now I'm back home. And then I had two Christmas parties in the last like three, four days. And I had a company training program. And I did not realize I was just coming back from vacation into just chaos. But that is what happened. I guess I'm not getting any days to reacclimate back into Southern California life. It was just right into it. Also, um, I've got a neighbor moving in next door. So if you hear any errant banging, probably later in the episode when I'm going to be done with it. But I am recording very early because I heard her rousing earlier and I would prefer it if we limit the banging. But I like to think that's some of the charm of this podcast is it doesn't sound like a studio. And every once in a while you hear a distant semi-truck go by that I didn't hear while I was recording because I was in the zone. And when I was editing it, I was too lazy to re-record that section. So let it be what it be, what it is. But if there's any weird like microphone tonal changes, that means it got too bad and I had to stop and start. And, you know, that's part of recording a new apartment. Anyway, um, oh, this is going to be a long one. At least there's no strike stuff this week. Um, I also got my Spotify rap numbers this week. And apparently there are at least 45 of you that use Spotify that like me better than apparently I like myself. This podcast was my number three overall. But for 45 of you, I was number one. So that's pretty cool. So thank you very much. I didn't think I liked 45 people, but clearly I do because you seem to like me. And if you like me, I probably like you. But yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. It's still wild. Like I say it every time I get like positive news like this, like anytime that like I get faced with the fact that people that do not know me are actually listening to this is hilarious because I don't even think 45 people in my life know about this. So let's get back onto the stuff. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, The Ballad, A Ballad, I'm not sure. I forgot to double check. But you know, it's the new Hunger Games movie. So I enjoyed The Hunger Games back when it came out like 10 years ago. I was right in the age for like dystopian young adult. I was a young adult. And I did like the first two movies. The second two kind of felt like too much of a cash grab when they split the last book into two parts. And this one was fine. It wasn't great, but it was fine. Definitely too long. It's like two and a half hours. And there was a weird amount of singing. I'm saying this as someone who loves musicals. It was a distracting amount of singing. I've not read the book on which this film is based. When it came out, I was like, I've aged a little bit too much out of like young adult novels. I did read the original trilogy back in the day. So I was familiar with the lore and the situation. And obviously Coriolanus Snow, he's like the main bad guy in the original trilogy. But I was not obviously familiar with this book. It's possible there was a ton of quote unquote songs in the book, but it was weird in a movie. 
And they went on an uncomfortably long time in certain parts, especially when she was singing acapella to a camera. Really, really weird. Didn't, didn't work. Overall, Viola Davis is a standout for this movie. Is anyone surprised? It's Viola Davis. She's incredible. From what I can gather, it's close to the book and people who like the book seem to be happy with the movie. So far be it for me to judge your thing that you like. For someone who, you know, knows a little bit, maybe saw the movies back in the day, but hasn't been a Hunger Games fan in a while. It's fine. It's fine. And now on to this week's topic. For our special one-off December episode, this year, as requested by email from Heather J, didn't know if I should use your last name or not, who emailed me all the way back in January about potentially doing this topic. And as soon as I did, I told my friends, I'm like, oh, I know what my one-off topic is this year. I just have to wait 11 months to do it. Uh, But yeah, we're going to take a look at film restoration and how modern archivists preserve old films once thought to be lost or destroyed to once again shimmer on the silver screen. We'll also talk about a few different instances where films were lost forever due to devastating fires. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Motion pictures are a snapshot of the world in which they were made. And it's important to preserve that history, not just for the sake of cinephiles like me, and presumably most, if not all of you, but for the history of humanity as well. We preserve paintings and sculptures and the like in museums for this purpose. And even though we more often than not watch movies as a form of entertainment, they are also an art form worthy of preservation. Unfortunately, unlike a painting or a sculpture, the materials that used to be required to make films don't exactly hold up as the decades march on, and there became a need to find innovative ways to protect these moving time capsules. Before we go any further, just so I don't have to jankily insert it somewhere else, I couldn't really find a nice seamless place to put this, but I want to make sure that you, the listener, know the difference between a film print and a film negative, since you'll hear those phrases used a bunch here, rapid fire. And just so you know, you know, the difference in quality of of the two different things, especially for those who never had to use like disposable cameras. So a print of a film is something that is created off of a film negative, which is basically considered that the master copy of a movie. If you want to make another copy of a movie, it's always better to have the original negative. A print, while a pretty good copy, is just that. It's a copy. The way they taught us this idea in film school is basically this. Think about what happens when you Xerox a piece of paper. Usually it looks pretty good, though it might be off in a place or two, maybe a little blurrier, maybe a few spots here or there because dirt on the printer. But it's still a copy. You can see what it is. You can see the details. You, you know what you're looking at. But let's say you lose that original or in the case of like modern stuff, you lose the, the file that this document was from. And then you have to make a copy of that paper using a copy. That's likely going to cause some further blurring, splotches, what have you. This can also be caused by the age of the original copy, copies of that copy, or even the scanner a copy is being duplicated with. 
you know, because there's going to be scratches on the on the lenses and dust and whatever. You're not going to clean it every time. So for preservation purposes, film print works if there's nothing else available. But a negative is always the preferred jumping off point for preservation because it's going to have the most detail. It's going to have the sharpest image. It's going to have the least things wrong with it. Of course, negative film negatives can get aged as well because every time they get put through a scanner or a projector or what have you, they're at risk of, of being aged. But they're still your best option. So hope that makes sense because I'm really tired of saying the word copy. But yeah, that's basically it. A film negative is the original and a print is a copy. Global apocalypse permitting. These days, it's easier to keep copies of our modern films, TV, etc. archived in a way that ensures at the very least their viewing viability so long as we have electricity and the right machine to access a storage drive with. And transferring from one storage drive to another storage drive, not the biggest deal in the world. But this is a modern solution and it's a pretty good one, but drives also don't last forever. Sorry, everyone. Digital solution is not a permanent solution. Far, far longer than the film prints we're about to talk about or the film reels we're about to talk about, rather. But uh, not an eternal solution either. Despite digital storage capabilities, films are still widely stored for archival purposes in the form of film reels because they are still the most viable way to preserve an older film's original essence, detail, for lack of a better word. So let's get into the history of how film has evolved over the years and the degradation that can occur to film reels. And as always, this is going to skew a bit more toward the Hollywood side of things. Every single country, every single film industry across the world has a different history of how they got to archiving their things. And this is already a very long episode, so I had to I had to choose. And it's unfortunately always not unfortunately. It's just the fact of the matter is it's the largest industry. So therefore, it by its nature gets its own attention. If you're interested in hearing about others, I can also do that down the line. Just let me know. The goal of film preservation is, of course, an obvious one. It's to prevent a film from becoming lost. A lost film is a feature film or short or home video or newsreel or industrial or anything basically that was on film that no longer exists in any studio archive, private collection or public archive. A film that has not been recovered and restored in its entirety is called a partial lost film. During most of the 20th century, U.S. copyright law required that at least one copy of every American film be deposited at the Library of Congress at the time of copywriting the film, which sounds great. But the library was not required to hold on to these copies. More often than not, they were returned to the copywriter, who was less than keen about keeping an old movie around that was no longer making them money. As a result of the library not opting to hold on to these films, a report by Library of Congress film historian and archivist David Pierce estimates that about 75% of original silent films have perished off the face of the earth forever. Only 14% of the 10,919 silent films released by major studios exist in their original formats. 11% survive only in full-length foreign versions or film formats of lesser image quality. Of the American sound films made from 1927 to 1950, an estimated 50% have been lost. Martin Scorsese's Film Foundation estimates that 90% of American silent films are lost, which is a devastating number. 
So why didn't they hold on to these films? They were, you know, it was a big deal to have moving pictures back then. But in the early days of film, motion pictures were seen as a fad. They were a gimmick that people thought would be out of date before they knew it. And why would anyone want to rewatch these goofy little things that they made? As long as it made them money and was popular, maybe they'd keep one copy kicking around. But otherwise, they didn't really see the point. It was always what's new, what's better, what's different, what's you know, beyond what we already did. There was, they never felt a a real reason to hold on to them, or most of the studios didn't. As a result, no one was really looking to keep them archived properly for posterity's sake. For this reason, the largest cause of silent film loss isn't time, like you'd think, rather intentional destruction. Before the era of television or home video viewing capabilities, films were considered to have little future value when their theatrical runs ended. Similarly, silent films were perceived as worthless after the end of the silent era because surely no one would ever want to see those dinosaurs again. Since they were perceived as dead weight, it wasn't unusual for a studio to destroy the reels if they needed space or storing them got too spendy. The studios could also get money by recycling film for its silver contents. Many Technicolor two-color negatives from the 1920s and 1930s were discarded when studios simply refused to reclaim their films, still being held by Technicolor and its vaults, and they didn't see a reason to hold on to them. Some used prints were sold to scrap dealers and ultimately edited into short segments for use with small, hand-cranked 35mm movie projectors, which were sold as a toy for children for showing brief excerpts from Hollywood films at home. For you millennials, this was like a visual equivalency of like a hit clip. Many other early motion pictures are lost because the nitrate film used for most 35mm film negatives and prints made before 1952 is highly flammable unless carefully stored. If they aren't, nitrate film can combust, which is rare but has had some devastating consequences. Fires have destroyed entire archives of film. We'll discuss a few big ones a little bit later on in the episode. So if you're unfamiliar with what film stock is comprised of, motion picture film stock is made of three layers. First, there's a base of cellulose nitrate, cellulose acetate, or polyester. I'll get into the difference in a little bit. And just like with still photography, one side of the film is coated with a binding layer that holds a light-sensitive emulsion of silver halide particles suspended in a gelatin. Dyes are added to this suspension to produce color-negative film, otherwise you get black and white. Once... The camera flickers and introduces light to that cell. It creates a picture off of that, and that's how you get moving pictures. There have been three major types of film stock used over the last 130 years. First, cellulose nitrate, or just nitrate, which was in commercial use until the early 1950s. Then cellulose acetate, or just acetate, available since the 1910s, but widely used starting in the 1950s. And finally, polyester, which has been around since the mid-1950s, but never really caught on. It's still used occasionally, but people don't tend to like it because the colors fade pretty quickly. Both acetate and polyester are sometimes called safety film, in distinction from nitrate because it goes explodey. So the science behind the nitrate film thing is that nitrate film is chemically unstable and over time it can decay into a sticky mass or powder similar to gunpowder. This process can be very unpredictable. Some nitrate film from the 1890s is still in great condition, while some nitrate film was unsalvageable when it was under 20 years old. It really comes down to the storage of the film. And unfortunately, this is not a common practice in many places and wasn't for several decades. 
when a film on nitrate stock is said to have been preserved. This, from a modern sense, almost always means simply that it has been copied onto safety film or more recently digitized, but both methods result in some loss of quality, though for the latter, methods are improving. Honestly, for both methods are improving. But like I said, there's nothing better than that original negative. Kodak introduced a non-flammable 35mm film stock in 1909, but the plastic elements used to increase the film's flexibility evaporated too quickly, making the film dry and brittle and causing frames to separate and the perforations to tear the sprockets. By 1911, the major Hollywood film studios were all using nitrate stock. Safety film, the plastic film, was used for smaller formats, 16 and 8 millimeter, until the improvements were made in the late 1940s and the acetate became the more commonly used film. Another reason we've lost some films along the way, some pre-1931 sound films, like the ones produced by Warner Brothers and First National, have been lost because they use a system with a separate soundtrack from the film on a special phonograph record. This is, of course, the Vitaphone system, which gave us the talkies like the jazz singer, but was a nightmare to preserve. Sound on film technology got rid of this issue, but not every film in the Warner vault was converted. Many of these films only survived because they were eventually printed onto 16mm safety film so they could be aired on television. Because of this lack of preservation, the work of many early filmmakers and performers exists in the present day only in short sequences that have managed to survive or in still images. We covered her in January 2022 as she is one of the most famous examples of this, but actress Theda Barra was one of the most famous actresses of the early silent era who appeared in 40 films, but today only six exist in any form whatsoever, and no completed Theta Barra film currently exists. There's actually a reason for this, most likely, which we'll again discuss later. An improved 35mm safety film was introduced in 1949, and safety film proved to be more stable than nitrate, as far fewer films were lost after about 1950. However, something known as vinegar syndrome can happen to the film, which still threatens the preservation of films made since that time. For those of you who don't know what that is, assuming most of you, I think I briefly learned about it in college. Vinegar syndrome describes the chemical reaction that goes on during the degradation of safety film. When it begins to decompose, and do not come after me if I pronounce this wrong, deacetylation occurs, deacetylation, and the acetate ion in the film reacts, causing moisture to form as acetic acid, which gives off a vinegar smell when a film canister is open, which would alert the archivist or whoever's opening the canister that this chemical reaction is occurring. The presence of this smell does not mean the film has completely degraded, only that the reaction is taking place and that it could happen to it. This reaction is continuous and once started, it cannot be stopped or reversed. It can be slowed, but it cannot be stopped or reversed. In fact, the reaction feeds on itself and therefore speeds up over time. The acid produced can also react with the dyes and color films, causing dye fading and damage to both the image as well as the base of the film. So not a perfect fix for archiving, but definitely less explosive. So there's an improvement there. Small, small victories. Then there was also the polyester socks. Polyester socks didn't have the chemical reaction, but they had color fading that happened by Martin Scorsese's um, estimation in about six years. Aware of this loss in quality in the polyester-based stocks, Martin Scorsese actually opted to shoot his film Raging Bull from 1980 in black and white instead. 
Around this time, he sent off a furious letter to his fellow filmmakers about the lack of quality in the color film stock, which would eventually force Eastman Kodak to improve a film stock's color viability. Scorsese also sent each major studio a list of the films that should be prioritized for preservation for the sake of film history. At several studios, including Paramount, the list was used as a jumping off point as they ramped up their archival and preservation efforts. Though that had been occurring for a while. In 1967, the American Film Institute, better known as AFI, was founded, which came out of the National Foundation on the Arts and the Humanities Act, signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson two years prior. AFI's mission is to preserve films, quote, essential to American identity and to, quote, elevate the nation's greatest art form to its deserving place in history. Also, since 1990, Martin Scorsese, who founded it with a lot of his other famous director friends, they threw money in at this. His film foundation has been restoring films to look like they would have the day they were released. To date, the organization has restored over 950 films. Other companies like Eastman Kodak and the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences and the Criterion Collection have followed suit. In the U.S., through the National Film Preservation Act of 1988, the National Film Preservation Board was founded to, quote, ensure the survival, conservation, and increased public availability of America's film heritage. In 1992, Congress asked the Library of Congress to assess the state of film preservation. The resulting report, which came out the following year under the direction of the National Film Preservation Board, informed Congress that motion pictures were disintegrating faster than archives could save them. The films determined to be the most at risk for being lost were documentaries, silent era films, newsreels, historically significant home videos, avant-garde pieces, industrials, and independent films made outside of the studio system. Hollywood, more or less, had begun taking archiving seriously by this point, but of course, there were many losses on the way before they decided to start doing that. And when it came to certain films, especially like the independent ones, they were scattered throughout the 50 states and were very likely not being kept in optimal preservation conditions, meaning they were degrading very, very quickly. The National Film Preservation Board enlisted the help of film industry experts, technical people, archivists, and film scholars to decide what needed to be done next. It held hearings and asked for public comment, and by 1994, the library had announced its findings on how to ensure these films would be preserved and shared with the American people and therefore the world at large. Firstly, film reels needed to be stored at low temperature, low humidity storage to slow the film's deterioration. When it came time, the decaying film needed to be copied onto new, more stable film stock. And yes, that will cause a degradation in quality, but a degradation in quality is better than not having that film at all. The library also wanted to use the emerging tech to share newly duplicated films with the public, therefore increasing the availability for education and exhibition. They also proposed creating a federally chartered foundation to help public and nonprofit organizations preserve American films so they could be shared with the American public. This led to the National Film Preservation Foundation Act, which was signed into law on October 11, 1996, with the goal to, quote, encourage, accept, and administer private gifts to promote and ensure the preservation and public accessibility of the nation's film heritage. This also authorized federal funds to advance this work. 
The NFPF started operations a year later in 1996, and the 12-member board of directors is appointed by the Librarian of Congress. Since 1996, Congress has increased the NFPF's authorization three times, most recently in 2016 with bipartisan support, which is so rare these days, of both the House of Representatives and the Senate. Funding received through the NFPF's authorization is secured through the Library of Congress and goes directly to the field for film preservation. Every penny of operational support is raised from other sources. So all of the money goes directly to the preservation and everybody gets paid through donations. That's that's the easier way of saying that. Each year, the National Film Registry, which is a part of the NFPF, selects 25 films showcasing the range of diversity of American film heritage for it to be preserved in the National Archives. I've got a link in the show notes if you want to take a look to see what was picked. Uh, The most recent one is 2022. They usually announce it in December of this year. So sooner rather than later, you'll the 2023 picks will come out. It'll be a little bit of news. It's usually more local news. I don't know how much it gets covered outside of Los Angeles. But it's always interesting. Last year, they picked Iron Man, which is a 2008 film. But, you know, it's technically historically relevant. So I get it. Other countries have done similar things like this. um, But as we've discussed in some of our world cinema episodes, this has been done to varying degrees of success. There's been issues. There's been fires. There's been political upheaval. There's not been a war on American soil since the Civil War, I believe. Yeah, it had to be a Civil War, right? So we haven't had any upheaval in that way that would potentially destroy our shit. So now that you know how film kind of works and how attitudes on archiving have changed over the years, let's take a look at how this is actually done. So when it comes to nitrate films, if you're sensitive to smell, you're probably going to have a bad time dealing with their preservation. Decomposing nitrate is described as smelling like that of a wet dog or a dirty gym sock soaked in a glass of sour milk. Nitrate film decomposes in stages. Stage one decomp is when the film begins to discolor. The white base of the film begins to turn a yellowish brown. Stage two occurs when the image begins to literally melt as the emulsion in the film begins to break down. Stage three, the film oozes and bubbles into a honey-like consistency, though it is actually still salvageable at this point. Finally, at stage four, the film crystallizes into a hard puck and turns into a brown powder, making it impossible to restore. Decomposition for a silent film typically starts at the intertitles, the written bit between scenes of actors that tells you what's going on or what the characters are saying in a silent film, as those were typically added to the film later and were copies that were photographed separately. They were also typically made from a cheaper stock. As a result, decomposition typically starts there and spreads like a cancer to the rest of the reel. When first given a series of decayed prints from which to make a restored copy, a film archivist will start by physically fusing each reel back together using rubber cement. Frames that are completely damaged or missing or destroyed are replaced with blank frames. You'll see why in a minute. If the perforations on the side of the film are broken, they must also be fixed if they can be, or they might cause the film to tear when fed through the machines, which would defeat the whole purpose of trying to, you know, fix it. 
There's actually a special kind of tape that looks like the side of a film strip, the sprocket holes, and those can be added to the print to ensure that the film does not tear. Once the film is more or less reassembled, it is then quote-unquote washed by being ran through an ultrasonic cleaner to remove dust and dirt from the film. Then it is digitized through a scanner. This is a long process that can take up to 24 hours per hour of film. This must be done for every single copy of of the film that will be used for the restoration. You don't just glue separate copies of a film together all willy-nilly. They also might be different sizes because you might be working off a 35 millimeter negative, a 35 millimeter print, and a 16 millimeter print. Those are all different sizes, different vibes. You don't want to do it. The sprocket holes are going to be different. It's going to create a mess if you try and just glue everything together. You can't make a Franken film, basically. Hopefully, in the cases for a super old film, the archivists have enough copies to ensure that the whole film can be put back together digitally. This will often mean that different prints and negatives used will have different levels of quality, which is another issue the archivists will have to contend with. 35mm is going to have way more detail, way more depth, way less film grain than a 16mm. It's a smaller frame. There's less detail, so it's not going to look necessarily as good. There's merits for 16mm film. It was a great tool um, in independent filmmaking before digital became more of a thing, but it is cheaper. There is less detail, especially when looking at a 35mm version of a film. So how do they get all these different prints if the film has been lost or, you know, not taken care of or whatever? Basically, they can find them from anywhere over the world, anywhere that that film possibly showed. You have a chance of finding the film, especially if they weren't really good at like returning them. And they're just in like some basement in Mozambique. That happens way more than you think. Just some random country in a basement just has some random films. That's how we actually have a lot of George Melies films, because he destroyed all of his in a fire when he became irrelevant in his time. Obviously now, huge deal. But most of the films we have for him exist because there were American prints made that his brother had in the United States that George did not have his hands on, so therefore could not burn. So we don't have a lot of Millier films off of their negatives. We have the Millier films because we took them off prints. So if you find a film in a basement, unless you're unbelievably lucky, that film's probably not going to be in pristine condition. But there might be some parts of it that are salvageable that maybe another film, real, negative, print, whatever, doesn't have. When you're amassing these film prints, another problem you might have other than their damage is that they've also been fed through a projector hundreds of times as they moved from theater to theater back in the day. As a result, prints broke, got scratched, had their sprockets damaged, what have you. In other cases, the film prints from overseas are sometimes censored, meaning certain scenes might be totally lost. If we don't have them in an archive here and they were cut out of a scene over there, that scene's probably lost. There are also rumors of projectionists who would cut out their favorite scene as a souvenir. If you've seen the film Cinema Paradiso, you've seen a dramatized version of this. When it comes to certain films, it requires a global search sometimes to piece together a full print to restore. For example, the Apu trilogy, a quintessential trio of films from India, had to be pieced together from several prints of the film after its original negative was destroyed in a fire. So that's how you find prints. You're probably not finding a wild negative anywhere. Negatives tend to stay with the studios. There are exceptions, but yeah, that's how that's how archivists get the prints to hopefully supplement a negative to make a a, a remastered, a restored print. Modern methods to do that, it should not surprise any of you to learn, involves modern technology. 
So from these prints and negatives, a timeline using the best surviving quality of frames is assembled digitally, creating as full of a film at as high a quality as is possible. Every discrepancy between the frames, between the prints, including color, contrast, and quality, can be fixed more or less in the next step, which is the actual restoration. Shaky movements between frames can also happen, typically caused by a film shrinking as time goes on, therefore destabilizing the image in the scanning process. This can be eliminated or reduced by stabilization software as a thing. The computer can look from one frame to another, and if it's jarring, can make it look less so. Film scratches, a side effect of being fed through a projector time and time again, can be almost entirely fixed digitally through software, so long as nothing in the background of a scene resembles a film scratch. For example, like parallel wallpaper in a background, the lines will look like a scratch because the computer can't distinguish the two. This similar software can also be used to digitally remove any dust or dirt that's present on the strip through the scan. If you're familiar with Photoshop at all, it's basically like the spot heel tool or clothes and stamping. It's crazy. They just go do-do-do-do-do, grab it from a different thing, just this little section, pop it on, done. Once the digital print is rid of as many imperfections as possible, it goes on to color grading. And the goal of this is to make the film match the original negative or print as closely as is possible without the film losing detail. Hopefully at the end, the film looks like it would have back when it originally came out, preserving its essence, basically. I keep using that word, but that's the best word I could think of to not like plagiarize anybody, but just like the vibe of the film. They want it to be the same color, same look, same thing that would have been present back in like the 1910s, 1920s, whatever. This time-consuming process can take up to two years to complete, which is why it's important that there's more than one organization doing this because it's it takes a lot of time. Even stuff that's in okay condition, it's still going to take time. And time is the enemy of preservation. So the film will also exist in a digital form, but it will also be returned to a film print form, preserving its original detail as much as is possible for future scans. Modern studio preservations look kind of like this, like what their archives are. The films are kept in a temperature-controlled room to optimize their lifespan, and they are scanned as new technologies have come along, like DVDs, Blu-ray, digital, what have you. Preservation efforts have been needed for films even from the 1980s because of the film stock that was used. However, in the case of digitization, the film is often condensed to fit on a smaller storage device, leading to a decline in image and sound quality. This is why it's important to preserve films on film. Also, if you have a, you know, you might have a film on like a USB drive or on your cloud or saved on your computer and it's like two or three gigs. In reality, a movie that has been digitized to feature all of its information is probably hundreds of gigs. It's a lot of visual information, but they've condensed it down so you can watch watch it at home. So that's also something to consider. Your DVD that you've got at home, not a great storage device. And now, as promised, here's some historically devastating nitrate film fires, just so we end on as high a point as possible during the Christmas or whatever you celebrate season. There have been a ton of them all over the world, but I picked some of the bigger ones that had some more devastating side effects. 
Film fires were an issue from the start of film. On May 4th, 1897, one of the first major fires involving nitrate film began when a cinematograph, the Lumiere's projector, caught fire at a charity event in Paris, which caused 126 deaths. On December 9th, 1914, a fire destroyed Thomas Edison's laboratory in New Jersey, which had a bunch of film stored in it. Less than a year later, the New York location of the famous Player Film Company, a predecessor of Paramount, caught fire. On August 13th, 1928, a fire was reported at Pathé Exchange. All these fires and the one we're about to talk about occurred because a flammable something or other was present around the highly volatile film, which caused the fires. Nitrate film cannot spontaneously combust despite some reports saying that it can. There has to be an outside force, likely heat or human error. On July 9th, 1937, a nitrate fire destroyed all the original negatives of pre-1935 films made by Fox Pictures. Northern New Jersey, where the archive was located, was experiencing a heat wave with temperatures reaching 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the day and hardly cooling off at night. The sustained heat accelerated the nitrate decomposition in the film vaults, and the building's ventilation was not enough to prevent a dangerous buildup of the nitrate gases. Sometime around 2 a.m., an ignition occurred in the vaults at the building's northwest corner. A truck driver had seen the fire and used a call box to report it to the authorities. The driver then attempted to rouse the residents of the surrounding homes, though many were already up because of the noise of the fire, as well as the intense heat. The film erupted 100 feet both out of the ceiling and through the windows, so it was just a massive fireball. When the fire spread to the vaults in the south and east of the building, they exploded. A mother named Anna Greaves and her sons John and Charles were caught in a, quote, sheet of flame while attempting to flee the area. All three were seriously burned and 13-year-old Charles died from his injuries 10 days later. In all, the fire spread to five neighboring homes and destroyed two cars. It took 150 men using 14 hoses to put the fire out, and that took three and a half hours. All of the film inside was destroyed. More than 40,000 reels of negatives and prints burned to ashes inside their cans. At a time before preservation was seen as a vital thing to preserve our cultural identity, 20th century downplayed the loss as, quote, only old films were destroyed. Of course, now historians recognize it for the massive loss that it was. Motion picture historian Anthony Slide calls the fire, quote, the most tragic American nitrate fire. The highest quality prints and negatives of every Fox film produced prior to 1932 were destroyed, and all known copies of many films had been stored in that facility. This fire is probably why we do not have Theta Bara films anymore. The only known prints were inside that vault. 18 years later, on August 10th, 1965, MGM suffered a similar fire. Shortly before 10 p.m., an electrical short ignited the nitrate film stored in Vault 7, causing a major explosion and fire that caused the ceiling of the vault to collapse onto the cans of film. Depending on the source, either one person or no one died in the fire, which I feel like is weird because when they know who the person was. When the fire was put out, it was found that none of the films stored inside could be saved. MGM was one of the few studios that had always taken its preservation seriously. Despite the fire, 68% of silent films produced by that studio have survived, which is the highest of any major Hollywood studio. 
However, the fire destroyed the only known copies of numerous silent films, which brings up another thing that I have not mentioned yet. Very important to have multiple copies of a film stored separately from each other, which is why it's important to have more than one people doing archiving and preservation. Maybe not preservation, but archive it and then send it to like your buddy and be like, you also keep this too, just in case God forbid something explodes. Like when you're shooting footage on a film set, like we shot my student film and it had, I had two giant drives and then one person had to leave in a different car and go to one location and then one person had to take the other drive and go to a different location and that was just for student film. It's important to me but culturally probably less significance compared to like The Wizard of Oz. Let's be honest. I'm not so up my own ass that I don't think that that's a more important film but even in those, you know, those practices have not been implemented much more like, oh, okay, in case a a drive corrupts or you get in a car accident, God forbid, and die in a fiery inferno or the building you're in employs loads, whatever, you want those things to be in at least two separate places. If we had been flying, we would have had to go home on two different planes. Like it's it's, you know, that's that's the contingency plans that are in place currently to prevent losing shit. Internationally, two of the worst fires occurred just two years apart. In 1980, a fire at the Cinémathèque Francois outside of Paris caused unknown damage, but significant damage, as the nonprofit did not have a full catalog of their films. On March 24, 1982, at Mexico's Cinéteca Nacional, in the heart of the nation's capital, their archive caught fire sometime after 6 p.m. The fire raged for 10 to 16 hours, depending on the source, resulting in five dead, three missing, and at least 50 injured. The fire had occurred shortly after a screening had concluded, which is why there were so many people around. To date, the exact number of deaths and the actual damage is unknown, but it is estimated that 6,500 506 films were lost, as well as 2,300 scripts and 9,000 books. Today, film fires, you don't really hear about them so much. The 2008 Universal Fire is the last, like, backlot fire that I can remember off the top of my head, or at least the last major one. But that didn't start in a vault. It started on the backlot because somebody had, like, a, a hot tool they they put down improperly. And thankfully now, preservation is a standard for studios and national and nonprofit organizations from all over the world that ensure that current films are stored in a way that they are viable for future consumption and older films are saved to ensure that going forward, we have a moving record of who we are and the art that we can create. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm finalizing my programming for next year, so if there's any theme, any person, any whatever you're kind of interested in and don't want to do the research for yourself, that's what I'm here for. Shoot me an email, send me a DM. I might not respond. I didn't respond to Heather back in the day, but I was so stoked on Heather for doing that, that obviously I just droned on for over an hour about this. So, or at least before I edited down. Um, 
But yeah, they're very helpful. I mean, we're approaching year five. The obvious things I've kind of done. So any any kind of way for me to sort of point where you'd like my focus to go. Very helpful. I've also got a letterbox account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I'm about to go get my coffee. Like I said, I started recording this. It's about 9 a.m. right now. I started recording very early because I can already hear my new neighbor banging around and I don't need to fight with a hammer because that girl was hammering some shit when I was on a work call yesterday for my grown up job. And that was not appreciated. But like at the same time, she's moving in. I'm talking fast for someone who's had no coffee today, but I think it's just because I slept well. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're wrapping up 2023 with a look on everything that happened this past year in film. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.